0: Ephesians chapter 5, we're in part 4 of our sermon series, A Blueprint for Christian Conduct. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God has given us a blueprint of how we should live, amen? When I started this series, I talked about Francis Schaeffer, who was a Christian philosopher, and existential writer in the 70s. He wrote a book, How Shall We Then Live? What a great book, it helps us to understand that after we accept Christ and we become born again... God has given us a blueprint for living, amen? Amen. So uh, here Paul is giving us a lot of good, solid advice about how we should live. And in part four of our series here, we're going to continue and unpack what he's given us. Let's, uh, as we're turning to Ephesians 5, I'm going to read verse 1 through, oh, about, probably about 6 or 7. Let's see where I get stopped today. Father, we thank you for the word and we ask that Ephesians 5 would come to life for us today. Holy Spirit, open up our minds and our hearts and bury the treasure of God's word deep within us and let it be a reservoir to us to shape our daily living. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Verse 3. But immorality and impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty. Say certainty. certainty. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person... Or a covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. And we'll stop there for this week. Our target verses are five and six today for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience therefore do not be partakers with them verse 7 just strikes my spirit i i don't preach out of verse 7 today but i use it as that concluding statement but as Tom gave that word today, when we, when we cast our lot in with the unrighteous and support unrighteousness, we will be partakers with them in the judgment. And that's exactly what God is saying here. Children of God need to support righteousness, not wickedness. If we do support wickedness, when the judgment comes, we'll taste of it. I know that doesn't fill churches, but that's what the Bible teaches. So a blueprint for Christian conduct, and we look at the text here and it says, you know, that we should know some things with certainty. And I want to talk about that today. There are some things in life we will not know the answers to until we see Jesus face to face. There are some things we just aren't going to know. And I call those the whys and the what ifs of life. You know, and many people have these why questions, why God was did this happen to me? God, why was I born into this situation? God, you know, why, why the physical disability? We have these why questions. Why did this person that I love so much die? God, why do children get cancer? So sad. And we look and we say why, and, and we say what if, and what if this, and what if that, and what if this happened, and what if I didn't, and, and the whys and the what ifs of life will drive us crazy if we don't leave them in the hands of God. There are people who are stuck on things. I mean, you could talk to some people, and something that happened 50, 60, even 70 years ago, and they're still stuck on it, and they're still mad about it, and they're bitter. So the whys and the what-ifs have to be left in the hands of God. And, 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 you know, there are some things that we just have to trust to Him. Why? Because they're above our spiritual pay grade to understand. And I've said this before. Just because we come up with a good question doesn't mean God has to answer it. God you know about the mysteries of the universe and about and you come up with a good question and God says that's good. But none of your business. Because if we knew all the answers to the wise, our heads would explode. Some of you don't believe me. No I can handle it. No. We can't handle it. In fact, There are things that God has to tell me and has told me that I wish he wouldn't have told me because they're hard to handle. So the whys and the what-ifs have to be left to God. And you say, why is that? Because there's some things that only the Father knows. Acts 1, 6, and 7 When they, therefore, were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So Jesus is with his disciples, and the disciples want to know, hey, are you going to deliver us from the Romans? Are you going to establish Israel? Are you going to do all the prophetic things that we've hoped and longed for? And Jesus' answer to them is, it's none of your business. Now that's the new Italian version. This is what the scripture actually says. Look, you guys are like dead today. Come on, uh, d- come, on. come on. What's going on? Yeah, on, Gucci? You guys alive out there? Yeah. And they're contemplating. The wise and the what ifs will drive you nuts. And, and, and only the Father knows these things. He, he says to them, oh, you know, are you going to restore Israel? And, and Jesus is like, it's not for you to know the times and the season which the Father put under his own power. Listen to this. Mark 13, 28 through 32. Now, learn the parable of the fig tree when its branches has already come tender and it puts forth its leaves. You know that the summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. So we see the signs of the times. Verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Listen to verse 32, but the day or the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the sons, but the Father alone. When's Jesus coming back? I know. No, you don't. Jesus is at the ready and ready to go. But only the Father knows because he's reserved that for himself. Listen, if Jesus doesn't know some certain things, then there are some certain things that we won't know. And we have to accept that and leave it in the Father's care. On the flip side of the coin here, there are some things we absolutely have to know. We have to know the truth about salvation and that Jesus is the only way. We need to know if we're saved or if we're lost. How many don't want to find out the answer to that question after you die? Right? Some people that think they're saved are going to find out they're lost. If you talk to everybody, most people think they're going to heaven. I'm a good person. I do good things. God grades on a curve. That's not what the Bible teaches. So there are some things we absolutely need to know the answer to. Paul tells us in the text that we should know something for certain. He says, for this you know with certainty. No immoral or impure person who is a covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Of Christ and in God he's saying we need to know that for certainty yet our generation doesn't know that for certainty and and many most people think they're going to heaven but God is saying people who practice sin and are sexually immoral who leave who lead these lewd lascivious libertine lifestyles who are greedy they are not Christians and they are not going to heaven that's what the word says Now, it's really quiet here today, and that's great because it's sobering. But the thing is, nobody likes to hear about this sort of stuff. But Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. This was Jesus. Why would he concentrate on that? Because he doesn't want anybody to wind up there. He says you should know for more for sure, these people who live these lifestyles. Now, I'm talking about sin. All of us sin. Can we just admit that in church on Sunday morning? I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We all sin. And I'm not talking about 10 years ago in a moment of d- deep desperation. I sin- No, you probably sinned this morning already. In fact, if you're sitting there thinking, I've never sinned, you've sinned. It's pride. Welcome to the club. So we're all sinners. I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about people who practice lifestyles of sin who know it's sin, but refuse to quit sinning and sin anyway. And, and the Bible says that people who practice habitual lifestyles of sin, no matter what they say, they're not Christians and they're not going to heaven. Newsflash. A lot of people who say they're Christians are not Christians. I remember as a young man, just getting so excited to meet somebody and I'd and say, well, I'm a Christian. And to me, that meant, hey, I'm born again. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I love God, you know, and, and, and they'd say, I'm a Christian too. And I'd get excited. Now I get suspicious. <laughs> Are you really a Christian? You know, like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Then you work with them and the things they say and the things they do and the, 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 the practice. I mean, and this all of a sudden you realize not everyone who says there's a Christian is a Christian. In fact, Matthew seven twenty one through 23 puts it this way. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus speaking, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye who practice lawlessness. What does lawless mean? Lawlessness means habitual sin. And what is he saying? Look at they're saying, we did spiritual stuff. We prophesied, we cast out demons. How many would agree? That's high level spiritual stuff. You see, it's not about being spiritual. It's not about, you know, uh, being in a, a good denomination. It's about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. He either knows us or he doesn't. and that will make all the difference for us in eternity. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says, I'm a Christian, is a Christian and is going to heaven. I want to cover with you seven marks of a real Christian. Now, this is not the the complete list. We could go on and on with the marks of a Christian. But I find these seven to be ones that the Holy Spirit put on my heart that would be the pillars that would prove whether or not you and I are Christians. Number one, the first mark of a real Christian is that a real Christian is born again. Crickets. You cannot be a Christian without being born again. Now, to many who don't understand what the Bible means when it says "born again," they think that's some re- weird, you know, ultra-conservative religious sect of you know, crazy fundamentalist all kinds of labels. Listen, the Bible says that we must be born again. Listen to John three three. Jesus answered him. He's speaking to Nicodemus, a high priest, very learned man, knew the scriptures. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we have to be born again. What is that? A spiritual rebirth is just us coming to the place where we acknowledge we're a sinner. We know that Jesus is the Savior, so we accept him on a personal level, and we allow him to be the Lord of our life. When we do that, God puts his stamp on us. He fills us with the Holy Spirit. He forgives our sins, and he writes our name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Oh, happy day. Amen. But that spiritual rebirth has to occur. Well, Pastor, you know, I was just born saved. No, none of us were. We were born in original sin, and we have to repent of our sin. Listen, you can sit in church all your life, and that doesn't make you a Christian. No more than sleeping in a garage tonight will make you a car in the morning. Hello? You and I have to be born again. If you're not born again, if you've never had that rebirth, if you've never passed from light unto darkness, if you've never repented of your sin, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that today, and you can be part of the family of God and have your eternity settled. Number two, the second mark of a real Christian is this. Real Christians proclaim that Jesus is the only way. All right, we're getting a little better, a little rumblings of amen. A real Christian doesn't say, oh, all roads lead to God. Oh, go to whatever religion you want. You can be saved. You know, Buddha can save you. Muhammad can save you. Uh, New Age can save you. No, a real Christian knows that Jesus saved them. I get nervous about these people with the all roads lead to God stuff because all, amen, amen. It's, yeah, I scream too because it's bad. It leads people to hell. All roads don't lead to God. All roads lead right off the cliff into eternal judgment. Only Jesus, the narrow road, only Jesus. There is no, under, no other name under heaven where which we must be saved. It's Jesus only. And so, you know, a real Christian proclaims that Jesus is the only way because they know who saved them. Amen? Amen? If you're saved, you know who saved you. And you know what can't save you. There is salvation, Acts 4.12, in no one else. You don't need a degree in theology. You don't need to speak Greek and Hebrew to figure out what that means. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Number three, the third mark of a real Christian. A real Christian has repented and shows signs of conversion. What does that mean? That means when we accept Christ, we don't just keep doing the same old thing, acting the same old way, but there's a change in us. Come on, how many people say, before Christ, you were a much different person than you are now? Yeah. Amen. Come on, about six people. Praise God. The rest of you, the altar call is for you today. Because the Bible teaches when we repent and are converted, there is a change in us. Now, we're not perfect, but we're a lot better than we were before. We're a work in progress. Amen? Amen? So here's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, all things are new. And so there is a change in the life of a person when they are truly a Christian. Number four, a real Christian carries a cross. The cross is not jewelry. The cross is not something we wear. Look, if you've got a cross that's got Jesus on it, get rid of it. Jesus is not on the cross. That's religion. Amen. <laughs> Jesus is risen. He's alive. <laughs> it's not about jewelry. Oh, I carry a cross. I wear a big cross. No, that, that, that's religion. And religion saves no one. But listen to me. A real Christian carries their own cross. Each of us have a cross that's been made for us to carry. And as we carry it, 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 it perfects us and it wears away the rough edges and it convinces us of what righteousness and truth is. Luke four twenty seven says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus said that cross carrying is a mark of a genuine Christian. Number five, a real Christian keeps the commandments of Jesus John 14:21 He who has my commandments and keep them is the one who loves me. and he who loves me will love be loved by my father, and I will love him and I will reveal myself to him. So a real Christian, follows the commandments of Jesus, you say, well, Jesus said a lot of things. Here's what it boils down to. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself and do everything you do in love. Amen. That you love one another will be proof, what? That you're my disciples. So Jesus's commandments must be followed. How about number six, the sixth mark of a real Christian? A real Christian does the father's will. Look what Matthew seven twenty one says. We've looked at this text already. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. You can take Jesus' words to the bank. God has a will for my life and for yours. And you and I have to do the will of God. I want to say that again. You and I have to do the will of God. Listen, I didn't choose this job as a vocation. (laughs) When I hear people say, well, if you're going to choose the vocation of uh, the preaching ministry, those are people that don't know anything about the call of God or the anointing of God. Hello, I've got to do this. And there's sometimes I don't want to do this, but I've got to do it. Why? Because it's the will of God for my life. Now, hopefully, as I do the will of God for my life, you're blessed by the fruit that it produces. But understand something. God has a will for your life. Oh, just the preachers have to do, you know, the God stuff. We can just live our lives. No, if you, if you live your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for his sake, you'll find it. You and I have to do the will of God for our life. You say, well, well, Pastor Rick, you know, tell me what the will of God. No, you get on your knees and in the prayer closet and let the Holy Spirit speak to you what his divine will is for your life. Find out what your business is and mind it. (laughs) Find out what he's called you to do and like St. Nike, just do it. So we've got to do the commandments of Jesus. We've got to do the will of the Father. And number seven, the last mark I'm going to cover today, it's not a complete list, but these are the pillars. A real Christian produces good spiritual fruit. Listen to Matthew 7:18:20. "A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits." Now God hasn't called us to be fruit inspectors, but we are to see fruit in other people. You know, some people think my anointing, I'm a fruit inspector, I just judge, I'm judgmental, and I don't like your fruit, it's rotten. No, we're not fruit inspectors, but we do see I see fruit in other people's lives as they use their gifts, as they, uh, you know, as they as they, you know, follow out their calling. When I'm sitting in the congregation and Pastor Mike or Pastor Frank are preaching, I'm enjoying the fruit of their gifts. Amen. When I see the worship team using their gifts, come on, when I see the congregation ministering to the children and the the the, uh, uh, the youth and all of these things, it's a blessing to watch other people produce fruits. As a pastor, I like to see fruit production, and I rejoice in that when I see. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a fan out there. I'm just watching. I'm watching what's going on up here, and I'm, I'm rooting for the worship team. Woo, use your gifts. It's a blessing. <laughs> I, wa- I watch people minister to the young people, minister to the children. I watch people in the nursery. You know, and I see them, and I'm like, wow, they, their gifts are awesome. I could never do that. That baby spit up on me one time. I'm done. I'm out. Fruit production, doing the Father's will, keeping Jesus' commandments, carrying our cross, showing evidence of repentance and conversion, proclaiming that Jesus is the only way and being born again are the seven marks of real Christianity. Paul says this about those who practice sin as a lifestyle and claim to be Christians. He says in the text, as it continues, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and in Christ. Now, that's an interesting thing for him to say here. That what? These people... Uh, who claim to be Christians, yet they are habitual sinners and practice sin as a lifestyle. They what? They have no inheritance. That's an interesting thing to think about. I want to just clue you into something this morning. All of you who are children of God, who are born again and have a relationship with Jesus Christ, have an inheritance in eternity that is just out of this world. Come on. You and I have an inheritance. Now, you know, when we die and we leave things to our family, to our children, we live them in inheritance. You know, many of us might look, well, I don't have a big inheritance coming. I don't have much to leave my children. And l- look, in this world, you know, the Bible says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children. So should we live in such a way that God prospers us and we do leave something? But our inheritance in Christ, what we have coming in eternity, is so incredible, so awesome that that should be our focus today. And he's saying what people that practice habitual sin, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God or in Christ. Romans eight seventeen says that we are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That means what Jesus inherited through his accomplishments on the cross is not only just for him. He has the name above every name. He sits at the right hand of the Father uh, at the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow and tongue confess. That's for Jesus. But we also have an inheritance with him. What do we inherit? Well, I am so glad you asked this morning. We inherit inherit forgiveness of sins for eternity. Oh, you should get excited about that. If our sins weren't forgiven, we would have to pay for them, and the wages of sin is death. So what do we inherit? Forgiveness of sins. My sins, your sins. If you're a child of God, your sins are forgiven. God remembers them no more. He throws them as far as the east is from the west. Blessed is he whose sins are forgiven. That's us, and that's an inheritance. So we inherit the free gift of salvation, Don't have to earn it. Don't have to be good enough. Don't have to be less of a sinner or more of a sinner than anybody else. The free gift of salvation. We inherit heaven as an eternal dwelling place. Anybody want to go to heaven? Heaven's going to be your eternal home. Amen? Amen? The Bible says it is pointing once unto man to die then the judgment to be absent from the body is to be present with God. When you and I draw our last breath, when our heart beats its last beat, you and I are not going to float around on a cloud playing a harp. We're not going to purgatory that was just a, you know was designed by religious people to dupe people out of money in the Middle Ages. We are going right into the presence of God because Jesus tore the veil in half so that we could go and have unity with the Father. Come on this morning. Heaven's going to be our eternal home, and it's going to be awesome. You know what Jesus has been doing all this time? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting to make his enemies. The Father's going to make his enemies his footstool. But he's been building mansions for us. Jesus was a carpenter. I bet you he built some nice stuff. Well, he's got a place for you in the Father's house. He's building a place for you. Angels are going to escort us to our mansions. (laughs) That's the right response. Amen. I wish I had a hundred more like you, brother. Amen. So heaven's going to be our eternal home, our eternal dwelling place. We've got mansions to live in, and all of that's great, and all of that's good. But here's the best part of our inheritance. We're going to inherit Jesus Christ, and we're going to inherit the heavenly Father. <laughs> Revelation teaches that in Jerusalem, there will be the new Jerusalem, there will be no light source in it because Jesus will illuminate it with his presence. What we, oh, man, what we're going to inherit is being in the presence of Jesus. When we worship, when we're in this place, do you feel the presence of God? Do you feel it during worship? Listen, that is just, that is just a, a minuscule amount of the presence of God that we feel now. When we're in the presence of God, when we're in the presence of Jesus for eternity, it will be complete and total bliss. There's going to be nobody frowning in heaven. What's the matter? Oh, I didn't get a good mansion. (laughs) There's going to be nobody frowning in heaven. No sickness in heaven. Ain't going to be nobody in a wheelchair in heaven. There's going to be nobody with cancer in heaven. What an inheritance we have. Paul wants us to know that people who practice sin is a lifestyle have no inheritance in the kingdom of god Not the the children of god have an inheritance and it's a glorious one hell is the separation of god and man anything that has blessing or virtue or goodness to it is because of the reflection of god everything we experience in life every good and perfect gift is because of god if you take god out of it it's hell Understand what hell is. It's a vacuum where there is no presence of God. What's the opposite side of the coin? Heaven is where God connects with us and we're in his presence for eternity. So that's our inheritance today. And it's a glorious one and we should be excited about it. Verse 6 gets interesting here as the apostle seals the warning he just gave. Uh, you know, we've talked about a lot of these warnings about immorality and impurity and greed and, uh, you know,. Course jesting and uh, cursing we covered the other week. Now understand something, there, there's a, a flip side to all that's going on here. He, the apostle warns us of those things, but then he gives us another warning in verse 6, and I want you to listen. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So he's saying here, you know, I'm warning you, people who practice sin, don't go to heaven. I'm warning you that lewdness and immorality and sexual immorality are not consistent conduct for a Christian. And then he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. So the warning here is against deception. And what does that mean, let no one deceive you with empty words? Well, in our generation, as with all generations, there's no shortage of false teachers, How many know that the New Testament warns over and over again that false teachers will come? And you know what? They sound smooth and they may hold a Bible and they dress better than me and they look good and they'll say stuff that's not scriptural. (laughs) Uh, And people will follow them because of their charisma and ignore the fact that they're unbiblical in what they teach. So there will be false teachers. We know that. We understand that. But there's more than just false teachers. There's new age gurus and self help life coaches and existential philosophers and people who are going to tell you, you know, how you should live and what's spiritual. Come on, you know about all these things daytime TV and infomercials. Hello. And all of these people are going to have one common message, whether false teachers, motivational speakers, new age people, gurus, philosophers. Here's the message. Your sin is just fine. A loving God will just overlook it. He accepts you the way you are and will never require you to repent from your sin. Come on, that's the message of all of the false teachers. You don't need to repent. You don't need to, you just be who you are. God made you how you are. You know, and, and listen to, to me. We are fallen people who have a sin nature, but God didn't make that. We chose that. It's quiet now. Yeah. Do, do I have to go back to Genesis, Genesis and look at Adam and Eve and trace it through? We're born with original sin, but God calls us to repentance. Why? So we can be born again and he can save us. Amen. But the false teachers will deceive and they will tell people, oh, you don't have to repent. Oh, God loves you the way you are. Your sin is just fine. It's a doctrine of devils that has been enlarging hell for centuries. Notice how deceivers deceive. It says, let no one deceive you with empty words. It's words. Be very careful who you let speak into your life. Be very careful what you watch on TV. Have you ever had anyone deceive you? I mean, they they had smooth words. They had slick speech. They were pushy, and and, and they were convincing. And after a while, they wore you out, and they tricked you. Don't look at me like that. Have you ever watched an infomercial, and you're at the beginning, and they're like, they're selling a bottle of junk for $19.95. But ooh, wait, if you act now, you can get a second bottle of junk just pay the shipping. And you knew it was a bottle of junk, modern-day snake oil, but you watched the infomercial. And the first five your minutes, you're like, this is stupid. This is junk. Then halfway through, that looks pretty good. And then by the end, I need that. What happened? You listened to some smooth words long enough that you got deceived. So then you paid your 1995 plus double shipping, and you got two bottles of junk and you knew somebody tricked you. I understand some things here. Words are powerful. Pastor Frank just preached a message on Wednesday about the power of words. And understand, people will use words for the good of the kingdom of God, but they will also use them to deceive people. Be careful who you let speak into your life. Be careful what you listen to. Uh, Adam and Eve were in the garden, and what happened? Eve saw the apple, and she just picked it and ate it. No, the devil, the serpent, spoke to her with an avalanche of smooth, persuasive words. And he spoke, and he spoke till he wear her out. And she believed, and she took the fruit, and she ate it, and she gave it to Adam. What did Adam do? Adam let the devil speak to his woman. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you let speak into your life. Men, be careful who you let speak into life of those under your covering. It's quiet now. God wants us to beware that the deceivers use empty words. That's the vehicle they use. And God's response to ungodliness is shown in the second half of verse 6. He says, uh, let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So there's the response there. God's wrath is revealed against the sons of disobedience. And we need to take a look at that here Uh, because of those things. What are those things? Well, it's what our text says, immorality and greed and uh, all of these things that are ungodly. And we know it because of these things, the wrath of God comes. Now, when you hear that word wrath, how does that make you feel? It's not unicorns and glitter and, and no. Wrath, wrath is never good, a good thing. And God's wrath is never a good thing. And if we provoke a loving God to express wrath, we done messed up. Hello? Many of you know my dad, Fred. He's a patient guy. He has a patience with a lot of you guys. And he's had patience with us when we were growing up. We knew as kids, Gary and I, and we knew if we got dad mad, we really messed up. Anybody have a dad? Anybody seen pictures, heard stories? Yeah, okay, so, you you know, some people have a quick view. You know, there's some people you gotta really push until, man, you get it and then you deserve it. That's how it is with God. He's a loving God, but yet he will respond in wrath to the unrighteousness of men. Now, what does the wrath of God look like? And here's what it's not. It's not that proverbial lightning bolt from heaven. It's not a rock that falls out of the sky. Imagine if every time we sinned, you know, a lightning bolt. You know, you're standing next to somebody, and boom, they're just a french fry. We'd straighten up real quick, wouldn't we? I mean, every time we, like, started talking, you know, bad stuff, here comes the rocks from heaven, you got to dodge them. We'd straighten up real quick, wouldn't we? But God's wrath is not like that. God's wrath is more like a divine resistance that follows the disobedient around like a black cloud. And it just continues to create these speed bumps on the road to hell. Listen to what Romans 1, 18 through 22 says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, but understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. What is Paul saying in Romans? He's saying we have an inner witness of conscience and the outer witness of creation that testifies that there is a God. And everyone who says there is no God makes himself a fool because they ignore their conscience and they ignore creation and they choose to say there is no God and they're without excuse. Now listen to verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Wow. Wow. Does that speak to modern-day atheism? Does that speak to the person who says there is no God? Conscience and creation testify, and you know it, but you reject it, and you refuse to honor Him, and you become foolish. Although you, you, oh, we're so enlightened and we're so intelligent, and you simplistic, narrow-minded Christians are fools. I've heard people say to me, "You believe in some wizard in the sky? You believe in some fairy tale?" A millisecond after your heart stops. Two seconds in the fire of hell, and you'll have a different opinion. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So the wrath of God looks like divine resistance, looks like a black cloud. It's a speed bump on the road to hell. Who is the focus of God's wrath? The texts tell us the focus of God's wrath are the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God comes upon who? The sons of disobedience. Now, who are the sons of disobedience? Well, let me tell you, they're not a biker gang from New Jersey. They're not a bad boy band from the 80s. Come on, that's funny. The sons of disobedience are those who have the inner witness, who have the outer witness of creation and refuse to serve God. This text is referring specifically to the Jews who knew all the Old Testament, knew all the prophets, yet rejected the Messiah. And they were the sons of God, but now they become the sons of disobedience. Understand something here today. If you're a son of disobedience, you are kicking against the, the Holy Spirit, wooing you into a relationship with God. Are you running from God today? I asked first service today. Are you running from God? Is there a black cloud over your life that you know every time you, you get out of his presence, just bad stuff happens? You fall from the frying pan into the fire. It's it's always trouble, it's always drama. Listen to me. If you are running from God and your life is a series of unpleasant events, it's not bad luck. It's not misfortune. It's not the man trying to keep you down. It's your sin attracting the wrath of God, and he is trying to arrest you on a path that leads to destruction so he can save you. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of that century, as a young man, was not a Christian. And here's his testimony of being saved. As a young man, Spurgeon was in great distress of mind Realizing he was a sinner and had sinned against God, he read the scriptures, he attended places of worship, but his darkness and despair continued month after month. One Sunday, on a Sunday morning, uh, Spurgeon went into a primitive Methodist chapel. Because of a severe snowstorm, the minister did not arrive, and an illiterate shoemaker stood in his place to preach. His text was, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth he exhorted his few hearers to look to Christ as their only hope of salvation. Seeing Spurgeon in the congregation in the back and knowing he was a stranger, he said, young man, you look very miserable, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey this text. But if you do obey this moment, you will be saved. Then the illiterate shoemaker shouted with all the boldness he could muster, young man, look to Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon did, and he was saved, and he was never the same again. God looks at our generation in its waywardness, in its refusal to accept him, and he says to us, as it were, young man, young woman, young and old, look to Jesus Christ, and if we will will be saved you know i wish that i wish that i could preach this message beyond these four walls because i know i'm preaching to the choir a little bit most of us know jesus here but look to jesus and you will be saved. The focus of God's wrath is the sons of disobedience. Those who push against the truth and reject Jesus Christ, God is after them. Listen, what's the end game of God's wrath? It's not to destroy the souls of men. Look, if God wanted to destroy us, he could have done it at the flood. If God wanted to destroy us, he could have done it many times over in many different ways. In fact, it's a miracle that some of us are still alive here today. Come on, think of some of the things you did in your youth. Now, I can't even say my parents are sitting there. I got to just keep it under, you know. But it's a miracle that some of us survived. Things we did and put in our body and risks we took. What's the end game of God's wrath? Not to destroy our souls for eternity, but to bring every sinner to repentance so that they might be saved. You know, John 3.16 is a linchpin verse of our faith. But John 3.16 has become more exciting to me because it says, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus didn't come as a judge. He didn't come to condemn. He came as a lamb to lay down his life, to save lost humanity, to seek and to save what was lost. Second Peter Three nine the last half says, God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The end game of God's wrath is not to destroy souls, but to save souls. St. <laughs> Augustine, another great Christian speaker and writer and philosopher, gives this testimony of his conversion. You know, there again, we see these great patriarchs of the faith and think, well, they were born saved. No, like all of us, they must be born again. Here's the testimony of Constantine's conversion. I was weeping in bitter contrition when I heard the voice of children from a neighboring house chanting, get up and read, get up and read. I could not remember having heard anything like this, so I... Check the torn of my tears, and I interpret this to be a command from God to get up and open the Bible and read it. Eagerly, I turned through the Bible and found the place where the apostle spoke. I seized it open, and in silence, I read this section that my eyes fell to first, not in revelry and drunkenness, nor in licentiousness and lewdness, not in strife and envy, but Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill it. No further would I read, nor did I need to. For instantly, at the end of this sentence, it seemed as if a light of serenity infused my heart, and all the darkness and doubt vanished, and I was saved. God will use children saying things they don't even understand. God will use prophets who spoke things that they couldn't even comprehend. God has spoken to me through preachers, through homeless people, through lost men, and he's even spoken to me through a fortune cookie a couple times. I'm telling you the truth. You say, why would he do that? Because God is not willing that any should perish. The end game of God's wrath is not to destroy but to save. He came to seek and to save that which is lost, and he will go to great lengths to save lost humanity. Today, as we consider our Christian conduct, and maybe the whys and the what-ifs of life plague us, understand that God loves souls and he loves people. And today, those who practice sin have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let us examine our hearts. Let us examine our lives and make sure that we are in the faith. Let's bow our heads today. I want to make sure that everyone here is born again, that everyone here has said yes to Jesus. The Bible teaches that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus, uh, that Jesus rose from the dead, that we'd be saved. He made it so simple, so easy. Yet we can make that confession, and if we continue in sin, we deceive ourselves. There must be a change at conversion. What I'm offering you today is a clean slate and a fresh start in Jesus Christ that you can be forgiven of your sins, but the power of the Holy Ghost will enter your life and you will be changed. Not religion, but relationship. Not symbolism, but substance. Today, if you want a clean slate and a fresh start, a new beginning, if you want to know that you are Not lost, but you're found. I want to give you an opportunity to accept Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you want to personally accept Jesus Christ, I want you to lift up your hand. How many people would say, I want to make sure today that I belong to Jesus Christ? God bless you, ma'am. Just lift up your hand. The ushers are going to put something in your hand. Who else today? Make sure today. Don't leave this place. Most important thing we'll ever do. God bless you, sir. Let's pray a prayer together. Lord Lord Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner. And I know you died to save me. So I receive you as Savior. And I repent of my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And help me to be a different person. To to lead a different life. I belong to you now. From this moment forward. In Jesus' name. Amen you prayed that prayer for the first time, welcome to the family of God. Come on, let's do what the angels are doing today. Let's welcome let's welcome them. Hallelujah. Now, Father, for all of us who've confessed Jesus and we're sure that we understand what it means to be born again, but yet we've allowed some sin in our life to become habitual, Father, deliver us from sin. Let's just take a moment. You say, "Well, what's required? Repentance is required." that we would repent. Let's just take a moment in his presence where sin has crept in and become a habit. Let's repent and be free this morning. Confess to him. Confess. Father, we receive your forgiveness this morning. We confess our sin to you. We don't want to be brought under the power of sin, but we want to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, our, our repentance and our confession brings the, the power of the Holy Spirit, that resurrection power to help us walk in newness of life. Let us be free today and right before you so that fear will have no place in our hearts, that we'll know, that we'll know, that we know we're ready to meet you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.